Welcome to episode 194, Foundations in Treating Post-Traumatic Nightmares, Trauma-Informed Care, featuring Linda Schiller, Licensed Independent Clinical Social Worker. Make sure to subscribe to be alerted about future episodes by Clearly Clinical. Learn, grow, shine. This episode is proudly sponsored by Best Notes Electronic Health Record, software built for practices poised for growth and compliance. Visit bestnotes.com slash clearly clinical for a free demonstration. Hello to our listeners. My name is Beth Iriez, and today I am really excited to have a conversation about nightmares and dream work. Talking today with Linda Yael Schiller. She is a licensed uh, clinical social worker and her specialization for pretty much her entire career has been around dream work. Thank you so much for joining us. You're very welcome, Beth. So Linda, before we dive into this topic, why don't you tell our listeners about you and how this became so meaningful to you? So um, starting from the beginning, I'm from Buffalo, New York originally, and after my undergraduate work, I went and I lived in Israel for five years um, and then came back to live in the States here in the greater Boston area. And I was talking with you a little bit earlier, Beth, about how I got into doing dream work. And I said, as a a child, I'd always been interested in sort of the spiritual side of things and the non-linear way of understanding intuition and things like that. But I hadn't really done much with dreams as a kid. But after I moved to Boston, a friend of mine invited me to join a dream circle. And the way I responded to her was to say, yes. And then the next thing I said was, Um, what's a dream circle? And she explained to me that it's a group of people who get together for the express purpose of sharing and working and talking about their dreams. And that just sort of caught my imagination. And we started together as a group of four women. And um, we are still meeting over 40 years later. Um, Not the same four, but two of us are the same original members. And it's just, I have become fascinated with the way our unconscious connects with our conscious and the way our unconscious connects with other realms, including the spirit world and the worlds beyond through our our dreaming and have learned. So I, I began in the dream world at the same time that I was beginning my career as a psychotherapist. So I really kind of, they've sort of leapfrogged with each other hand in hand over the course of the last several decades. And I find that one just completely informs the other. And I can't imagine practicing as a psychotherapist without having access to this incredible body of knowledge that we all get every night through our dreams. And I find that when I'm working with people, no matter what we're working on, if I can encourage them and they will bring in their dreams for us to work on together, it always, and I almost never say always, but it always (laughs) moves the work forward um, exponentially faster because we get to be in touch with a whole body of knowledge that we we wouldn't have access to otherwise. Um, And I joke with my clients sometimes, I say, listen, if you can get a dream journal and record your dreams and keep track of the dreams and the themes, that's free therapy every (laughs) night. So it's worth your while. <laughs> Free therapy, you're putting us out of a job. I'm just kidding. <laughs> oh no! See, we still need someone to help us understand the dreams, right? Let's say it's ha- it's, it's half a free session, then the other half you got to come and talk about come it, process it, and understand it. Um, so I'm so excited to talk about this. 
Can you start by giving us just some background about dreams in general? Why do we dream? What does it mean when people do dream or don't dream? Why do our brains do this interesting thing when we're sleeping? So we only use a small percentage of our brains in our daily waking life. We know from neuroscience that there are large parts of our brains that we don't even know yet what they do, but they're there for some reason. And it stands to reason that some part of our brains we use that we already don't understand. So at night, when we are asleep, we have different levels of sleep, different depths of sleep, alpha, beta, delta. And there's one level of sleep called REM sleep, which is rapid eye movement. And that's the level at which we dream. So it is a neurobiological process that our brains go through every night when we sleep and we sort of it's like a rinsing of the day and a rinsing of the material that we've encountered not only that day but also then in yesterday and last week and last month and five years ago and all the way back to our childhood so when we dream we are processing something that isn't sufficiently processed or we're having a creative um, breakthrough of some sort when we dream. We know lots, many, many, many artists, dancers, scientists, Paul McCartney, for example, dreamed the entire melody to yesterday in his dream, got up, wrote down the notes from his dream. He didn't have words yet. So then he just sort of plugged in, I think it was, um, rice and cheese, da, 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 rice and cheese, until he finally got the words to go with the tune that he dreamed. Um, the DNA molecule of the double helix, Watson and Crick, right? They dreamed the image of two snakes entwined together while they were working on the project of trying to find the code, crack the code for DNA. And then they woke up and go, aha, that was the aha of, of creating the, the DNA strands of the double helix. So our dreams are incredibly, incredibly useful and informative. And our dreams also provide an alert system. Back in the day when we were living in cave, we needed to be alert all the time to be on the lookout for danger in our environment. So when we were sleeping, if we didn't have a way to also pay attention to what might be going on around us, that could be literally deadly. So we developed a, an alert system where even when asleep, we could pick up cues from our environment to be able to cue us in to something that might be happening that we need to be on the alert for. Um, I'll give you one modern personal example of that. So many years ago, I was having a dream and in the dream, there was an earthquake. I was in, in the middle of an earthquake and that was not a common or usual dream theme for me. It wasn't something I regularly dreamed out. So, but I remember waking up and thinking, oh, that's really strange. And then I'm waking up and I'm in that in-between zone, but you know, when you're not quite asleep and not quite awake, it's called the hypnopompic zone. So I'm in the hypnopompic zone and I realize it still feels like there's an earthquake. Well, I come fully awake and find out there's a jackhammer digging up the street outside my house, right in front of my driveway. And it penetrated into my dream in the symbol of an earthquake to alert me that there was something going on out there. So to restate what you just said, we dream in REM, which is rapid eye movement. 
And the interpretation is that these dreams are referencing either something from our past, integrating current information, like you said about a jackhammer, or kind of unlocking a creative process. From a neurological level, you you mentioned rinsing, that dreaming is like yeah. rinsing. We know we need to sleep. Do we need to dream or are they just always intertwined and it may be that we simply don't remember that we had a dream? This is a really good question. So we actually are biologically encoded to dream. We all dream every night. We have five to seven dreams, which correspond to the amount of REM cycles we have every night. So depending on how long you sleep will depend on how many dreams or dream cycles you have. However, we don't always remember them. So when people say, when our clients say, when our friends say, oh, I don't ever dream, that's not technically true. Everyone dreams. We just don't remember our dreams. And we're less likely to remember a dream if we're awakened at a point in our, REM, in our sleep cycle that is not REM sleep. So for example, if we have to set an alarm, if our child cries in the night and wakes us, if we're jarred from our sleep by something that isn't our natural rhythmical cycle, we'll be less likely to remember the dream because we haven't completed the cycle or we might be awakened in a different sleep level than the one in which we usually remember our dreams. And I'm asking this just because I'm curious and I don't know much about it. There was a period of time where lucid dreaming was like a really big thing. Can you speak a little bit about what that is? So lucid dreaming is a, is a hot topic these days. What it means in a nutshell is that you are aware that you're asleep and dreaming while you're in the middle of your dream. So it's like being awake in your sleep to know, oh, I'm dreaming right now. This is a dream. And it can be really fun. It can be really exciting. It can allow you to move around inside the dream in a conscious, purposeful way if you bring a level of sort of waking consciousness of lucidity into what is otherwise an unconscious automatic process. So there's, there's actually a lot of books out there nowadays and a lot of people sort of teach workshops on how to better learn to lucid dream and things you can do to enhance it. And um, a lot of people use it for fun, right? I can fly in my dream. I can go on an adventure in my dream. I can have great sex in my dream, whatever it is that, that they want. Um, lucid dreaming can also be used if it's used very carefully to help us resolve issues, dilemmas, problems, and traumas in our dreams. And the reason I say carefully is because we don't want to shortcut or short circuit important information for our healing that may be coming through to us in a dream or nightmare by immediately changing up what we're dreaming. So if we're in a dream, for example, and we are being chased by a monster, a kind of a classic dream theme, Rather than just saying, all right, I'm going to sprout wings and fly away and go somewhere else. That's, that's a perfectly fine solution. However, you'll never know who was chasing you, why they were chasing you, what the message was that they were trying to bring you, whether or not you can have a conversation with the monster to find out what's going on here, what do I need to know or do before I just run away. So that's why I caution people to use lucid dreams carefully and judiciously 
when working with nightmares, particularly with nightmares from trauma, so that we don't miss the opportunity to do healing work. And I'll just go on my roll here for a minute. So one of the methods I developed for doing dream work with nightmares is called the Gaia method, which stands for Guided Active Imagination Approach. And in this method, it's this method is based on sort of two legs of um, theory. One is Carl Jung, Dr. Carl Jung's active imagination, a form of re-entering the dream and bringing it to life and enlivening it. That's one leg of, of the theory. And the other leg of the theory is based on EMDR, eye movement desensitization and reprocessing, because um, as an EMDR practitioner, I know that the first stage of EMDR is resource installation. So let's get ourselves safe, grounded, protected before we move into working directly with the trauma into the belly of the beast. So the Gaia method does just that. It helps set us up before we address the scary nightmare to have the resources that we need before we go into the dream. That's part A. And then the bridge in the middle is once we've gathered all the resources in along the lines of how we might do it in, in EMDR, and I can go into specifics later if you want, um, then we peek into the dream and say, okay, there are any resources in this scary dream that I might have missed first time around? As I told my clinician about this monster that was chasing me, if I'm standing now outside the dream with all my posse of resources and I peek in now, did I f miss mentioning that there was this old wise woman sitting cross-legged under a tree that I, I just forgot to mention before, I didn't notice before, but she was there with information for me right in the dream. So we gather those resources too. And then with all of our resources, we do the dream re-entry, which is the act of imagination, to be able to work with the characters, the landscape, the material of the dream in order to bring healing and resolution to whatever the dream is telling us needs some more attention in our life. Thank you. I absolutely want to talk more about Gaia. Sure. For today's conversation, zooming in on the topic of dreams and trauma, when we're looking at the diagnostic criteria for post-traumatic stress disorder, for example, that's one of the things that pops out to us. Can you speak about that and the role of dreams and or nightmares in trauma-based conditions? One of the things that we know about trauma is that it affects the body, the mind, and the spirit. And many trauma survivors talk about their experiences as being soul shattering. So when we have traumatic events, whether they're to that extent or they're minor, right? We have the big T trauma and the little T trauma. They're, they're both traumas. They're just at a different level of upset and can stay in our system for either shorter or longer, depending on A, what happened, B, how long it happened for, C, how old we were when the trauma happened, our developmental life stage, and D, and there's other things too, but for now, D, were there any resources or did we get any help or support at the time the trauma happened, or were we alone with it and not in relationship with anyone who could assist us or help us move forward? So there are many criteria that will help us to, in, will indicate for us um, what might be going on with the trauma that we're dealing with. One of the things that acute trauma often produces is a flashback. 
We hear that a lot from Vietnam, from, not just Vietnam vets, from veterans in general, dating myself, referencing the Vietnam War, of course, um, from battered women, from anyone who's had traumatic experience. They can have experiences of feeling like this is happening right now, something in their environment triggered a sight, a sound, a smell. So they re-experience the feeling of being in the middle of the trauma, even when it's years later or in a different place completely. So that experience of a waking flashback can also happen in our sleep. So some of our nightmares from trauma are the equivalent of a dreaming flashback of things that happened to us. So that's one aspect of the connection between um, trauma and, and nightmares. Two is that when we dream, sometimes we dream literal things. Yesterday I was putting my kid to bed and he or she was having trouble going to sleep and I stayed in the room and saying not only three but five lullabies to him and then I was exhausted and went to sleep. Now we might have a dream that literally says that to us in the dream, but more likely we'll have a dream that comes couched in image and metaphor. So in our dream, we might dream that there's a mother bear and, their, and her cubs. And in the dream, the mother bear is growling and really grouchy and the cubs keep playing um, and running around. And what's the connection between our life and the mother bear? Well, it was the experience we had last night, but it came through to us um, in, in a metaphor. So where our dreams come through in image and metaphor for any number of different readings, including when we're asleep, we have access to different parts of our brain than we use in our waking life, right? We know we have um, right brain, left brain, it's separated at midline by that seam that's called the corpus callosum. It looks like a seam if we look at the picture of a brain. And we know our left brain is more involved with sort of linear mathematical thinking. And our right brain is involved with circular imagery, um, artistic, nonlinear thinking, intuitive thinking. But when we're asleep, we are accessing image, images and information from our right brain more directly. And we're also accessing information from our limbic system, which is our, our way deep, deep in the center of our brain. So if you were to make a, a I showed this, this is not going to be video, but if you made, had take your hand and put your thumb in the middle and then made a fist around your thumb, so you, you're holding your fingers over your, your thumb, your, your wrist then would be the medulla, which is our autonomic nervous system process. The back of your hand would be the cerebellum. The front would be our prefrontal cortex, the part where your fingers are covering. That's right behind our eyes um, in, a, in our face. And then if you lift your fingers in the middle where that thumb is, that is your limbic system. That's our emotion brain. That's where our emotional life um, is generated from, including our responses to trauma, like fight, fight, flee, freeze, fawn, um, all the things related to trauma. So if we look even at a sort of this pictorial image with our hand in a, in a fist, we see that our orbital frontal cortex, what we see with is right in front of our emotion brain, our limbic system. And those connect when we're asleep and dreaming. So we have these vivid emotionally laden images that are allowed to come through when our waking left brain that sensors 
the uncanny and censors the weird and censors the non-linear um, information from coming through while we're awake. That's very interesting, which I'm guessing relates back to what you had mentioned earlier in these kind of in-between dream states, knowing that I've talked with clients before about that weird sensation of when you're falling asleep or when you're waking up of kind of a loss of connection to reality, which sounds like maybe those parts of the brain kind of talking. That's exactly right. So those in-between states of the hypnopompic and the hypnagogic zone, when we're just falling asleep at night, but sort of in between and we're just waking up, we're not quite awake yet. Any images, dreamish uh, thoughts that come through during those moments, I encourage people to write those down too. Those count as a dream because you're straddling realms of consciousness in those moments. So it's kind of our most creative, accessible state where we kind of have the benefit of both worlds. Going back to discussion about dreams and nightmares, knowing that for many folks who have trauma, one of the ways that that can show up, as you mentioned, is a flashback or a nightmare. Do we know why that increases in relation to trauma? Like, or I'm even curious for you as someone who's studied this and works in this field, what's your interpretation of why our brains express the trauma that way? Mm, that's a really good question. So my personal theory, I think it would probably be backed up by neuroscience, but we, we do know that when we've had traumatic experiences, it sometimes is more than our consciousness can hold, more than we can tolerate, more than we can grasp at, at any given moment of time. And we have a variety of reactions to being overwhelmed by the circumstances in our life. And one of our brilliant reactions that our body-mind system has given us is dissociation. So dissociation in the service of our ego is when we are allowed by our system to not feel our feelings, either at all or to the extent that it's happening, or be floating above our bodies, looking down so that we can see what's going on down below, but we don't have any uh, emotions connected to it. Or we titrate or um, cut off parts of the memory connected with the traumatic events, because if we held on to the full memory of something that would happened, we would potentially have a breakdown. It would be too much. So in the process of dissociation, we don't lose the memory of the event or the feeling. However, what we lose are bits and pieces of things that connect it and make it a whole. And we lose access sometimes to connecting the emotion with the event because our system says, oh, you will be overwhelmed. I am going to shut this off and put it away in a lock vault for you until sometime later in your life when you're safe enough and mature enough and have enough resources and help and connection with others to be able to unlock the vault and put the pieces back together again. So let's say you have somebody with a trauma background who comes in to see you and says, yes, I startle when a car backfires. But what bothers me the most is I wake up in the night dripping with sweat, heart pounding with these visceral nightmares. What do you do? The first thing I would do would say, would be to say, thank you so much for telling me. Because relationship and connection heals trauma and disconnection. 
So the first thing I want to do is appreciate the trust that someone has given me to share that information. And already then, by the fact that we're sitting in a room together or sitting across a screen from each other, they're not alone in the same way that they were either when the nightmare happened or when the original trauma happened. After that, I would say, would you like to work on this nightmare? Because maybe they just want to tell me they had it, and that's all they want to do today because we're titrating, right? Drip by drip. That's part of the um, key of trauma treatment is slowly, slowly, right? Drip by drip. And also we do pendulation where we go back and forth between we talk a little bit about the trauma and then we swing to the other side like a pendulum and we talk about something pleasant or neutral to help balance the system to keep it from being overwhelmed. So I'm using those same uh, approaches in dealing with nightmares. So if they say, yes, I'd really like to work on it, I'm, I'm really tired of having this happen, it's so scary, then I would do a whole variety of different methods and techniques with them before looking at the nightmare to help them feel safe and grounded. What I might ask at this point is, would you like to tell me what you remember of the dream or the nightmare first or do you need first to set up some safety and resources and protection before you even say what the dream was right now i don't go this this carefully with someone who has a fun dream or a pleasant dream or a mildly irritating or a little bit annoying dream if someone has anxiety in their dream that's like a two on the sub scale subjective unit of distress right i'm not going to be this this careful but if someone has a seven or an eight i'm going to be this this careful because I don't want to inadvertently recreate a system of the overwhelm or trauma. So if they say, oh, I can tell you what happened in the dream, I say, go ahead, and they'll tell me their dream. But if they say, no, it's so scary, I'll say, All right, before you even tell me the dream, let's put some resources in place for you. So then I start to work with them on principles principles based on the Gaia method, plus other things that I have learned and studied, you know, throughout my professional life, you know, ranging from doing some uh, energy bubbles of um, surrounding the person and, the, oh, and the, with, with light to having them look around the room and ground themselves in the the now in the space and time in which we're sitting here in my office around the screen and have them really ground in the present. And I want to use all the sensory options that there are to really make their current safe place as vivid as possible using sight, sound, smell, touch, taste if they're eating or drinking something in order to have the current reality of safety be more vivid mm. than the remembered image of the nightmare and or the trauma itself. And when it comes to working with nightmares, for many folks, you mentioned when we wake up and how that affects our ability to remember what happened. Is there any clinical difference between someone who vividly remembers these nightmares or somebody who knows that they happened and that they woke up in the night and they were really disturbed and distressed, but they don't know what the themes were. Oh, so there could be, I don't think there's a clinical difference. The difference is if someone is a visual person or not, or an auditory person or not, um, or at what point in their REM cycle they woke up, 
um, or if they're in the habit of valuing their dreams and writing them down. Because if we value them and view them as having important information to share with us, we'll be much more likely to remember them, right? We, we see what we pay attention to. We, we notice what we value. So I encourage people to keep a journal by their bed. And in you know modern younger folks, if they, they're not up for keeping a handwritten journal, then perfectly okay to type it into your device or speak it into your device and then later record it. But I do encourage people to record it in handwriting or at least type it out later on because once you've written out your dream, you will see things and things will come through in the writing of it that you didn't remember you knew until you started to write it. That happens to me all the time. I'll wake up with some kind of a dream. I'll start to write it down. And as I'm writing, I'll remember more details that I would not have remembered had I not been writing it down. Out of curiosity, for you as someone who understands these things very well, if you're talking with somebody and they say, oh, I don't dream, just across the board, I don't dream. Maybe every once in a while I'll have a dream and I'll remember it. Does that prompt you to refer out, to talk to a sleep specialist or pulmonologist? I'm just curious, knowing that our dreams are an indication then about REM and our sleep quality, is that a red flag for you? Not necessarily. If someone says, I wake up gasping for breath, then I would refer them because I would worry about sleep apnea. Right. But not remembering dreams is so, so common that I would ask a whole lot of questions. And the first one would be, do you care? <laughs> Does, <laughs> Does it, it bother you? Right? Does it matter? Do you, you, do you want to remember your dreams? Right. Because some people like, ah, nah, that's not, I don't really want to. It doesn't matter to me. And it's like, okay. So I want to like, you know, social work 101 be where your client is. I want to, I want to respect that. But if they're already telling me that they don't dream, that to me hints that it's on their mind. Or maybe they're telling me because they know I do a lot of dream work. But um, in any case, I would ask them if they want to. Are you interested? I would tell them the sort of the facts of, well, you actually do, whether or not you remember them. And, you know, we talk about, you know, neurological and studies and brain scans and things if someone was sort of scientifically oriented. A lot of times people will believe a scientific fact when they won't believe something you've just you know, tell them like off off the cuff, or even you know, brilliant psychiatrists, psychologists, um, clinicians will will say. But it, but if there's a study, if there's facts, if there's a brain scan or a PET scan, oh well, then then we know because it actually has been documented in sleep labs, and we can see people's eyes moving back and forth. You know, when they're dreaming, and our pets, our pets dream too. If you ever saw yep. your cat or your dog, they're the running in the sleep. Their little, <laughs> go, yeah, their you legs go get are that twitching. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you go get that buddy. Exactly. So, if they're interested in dreaming, then I'll talk with them about how do you remember your dreams if you'd like to. And there's a whole lot of things if you want to go in that direction about how people can um, remember their dreams. For you, when working with someone who has a history of trauma and they're having these really insidious, unpleasant nightmares, if they're having trouble remembering their dreams, what kind of scaffolds do you put in place before saying, write down whatever you can remember? Absolutely. So if they're, they're waking up, I, I imagine from the way you're asking the question, they're waking up in distress. Their heart is pounding, they're sweating. They're having a sensation, uh, a feeling of anxiety. So what I tell them, and this is 
not what, just what I tell them, but this is actually the truth, is that that is your dream. You can have dreams that have pictures and a story narrative, and you have dreams that are simply a physiological sensation and or an emotion, and that's the dream. So if I say, they say, I don't have any dreams I remember, but I'm waking up with these symptoms, I'll say, write that down. I'll say, get your journal or your device and write down, woke up in the night sweating with my heart pounding, feeling anxious on a scale, you know, on the, on the sud scale of, you know, zero to 10, it was a nine or whatever it was. Honor that that is how your dream is coming through for the moment. And then in the night or before you go to sleep, you can ask the question, is there anything else I know? Is there anything else I remember? if I put my attention there. And sometimes, once we've calmed our heart rate, once we've, I've worked with people around doing various breathing techniques, um, sometimes if someone wakes in the night like that, what I'll say is, as soon as you're able to, change your physiological position and your state. Get up, get out of bed, stretch, splash your face with cold water, Hold your wrists under the cold water because that will change, you know, from a polyvagal perspective, that'll change what's going on in, in your whole neurological system. And don't go back to bed until you've reached a state of physiological calm again, because we don't want people to only associate upset with being in bed. So start with getting yourself calm. They can sit in a chair and meditate. I teach people a variety of different types of meditation techniques, a variety of different types of visualizations. Um, and if and I introduce a spiritual component, whether or not someone is um, connected with a, a religious practice, it might be from their religious practice, or it might be a, a neutral or an earth-based spirituality. But I'll say, connect with that which gives you, and they can do this before going to bed at night too, before they even go to sleep, to start with, to get themselves in a, in a good space, so to speak. Um, connect with that which brings you peace, comfort, joy, relaxation. I ask them if they have a spiritual belief system that works for them, and if so, I'll use an icon from their spiritual belief system. You know, sit. One of my clients used to tell me she would sit in Jesus's lap, and that made her very comfortable. Um, someone else said that um, they would breathe the smell of the incense from their rituals, and that would bring them. Um, there's a wonderful prayer in Jewish tradition that invokes the four angels and you surround yourself on the, the right is Angel Gabriel, um, who is uh, like the right hand man of God. The front is Uriel and Ur means light and El means God. So Uriel is the light of God. To the left is Gavriel, and Gaver is the strength of God. And then behind you is Raphael, and Raphael is the healer, the healer of God. And then above is Shekhinah, and she is the indwelling feminine presence of God. So there's a beautiful song. And sometimes people who have a Jewish background or tradition, this is a Kabbalistic prayer. And those who don't as well sometimes really enjoy just that visual and that sense of being surrounded by angels. But whatever it is that works, Breathe in, connect with the power of the universe, connect with the force, connect with Gandalf, connect with Dumbledore, right? Whoever and whatever it is that makes you feel comforted, safe, connected, and whole.
right? Because we know that trauma is a shattering experience. So to connect with that which makes you feel held and whole is a really good start to calming our whole system down and feeling and, and having the felt sense, borrowing that phrase felt sense from Eugene Gendlin's focusing of we are more than our traumatic experience. So we're beginning the process of disidentifying from I am a trauma victim to I am a whole being and something happened. And that's very different than identifying as a victim. Very interesting. It's going to take me a minute to unpack everything that you just mm. shared. I know I got on a roll there. <laughs> no, it, but it, it gives me a lot to think about in this idea that our nightmares are potentially an expression of lack of safety, lack of wholeness, lack of stability. And that what you're saying is an antidote potentially before sleep is just an investment in safety and wholeness. And then when you're looking at treating nightmares, really establishing safety and security in order to go into the unconscious and what's being expressed in the nightmare to try to help it budge. Is that right? Yes. What I will add to what you beautifully summarized is the concept of titration, little bit at a time, right? This is from um, Peter Levine's work, Waking the Tiger, with the somatic experiencing. And I'm sure Bessel van der Kolk has also spoken about titrating, where we do a little at a time. So before going to sleep, we can invite our clients to send their intention or their prayer or their direction to the universe to, to say, please don't give me a dream or nightmare that's more than I can handle. Please just give me a little bit so I can process it. Or if they need a break, they can say to the universe, please guard me in my sleep and do not let scary nightmares, dreams come through until such time as I am able to handle them. So you can set this up before going to sleep. This is a process called incubating a dream. So when we incubate a dream, we kind of ask for what we want from the dream. So if someone is ready to look at the tra trauma history, they can say, okay, dream muse, I'm ready, but just give me a little bit, please. No more of this uh, waking up in a panic kind of thing because I'm gonna like lock you in a room if you do that. So just a little bit at a time, don't flood me. And they can practice doing that um, before going to sleep uh, to help create a safe space in their bedroom before they actually go to sleep. And in your work, knowing that this is one of your specializations, and I'm imagining that your caseload has had a lot of folks who are struggling with nightmares seeking out somebody like you, is there any, as is an obscure term in, in the clinical world, but is there kind of any average where it's like, yeah, if we do this, I find that within a week or two, within six months, like if you are establishing these safety scaffolds and intentionality around safe dreaming, how long does it take you to see that this is helping? Oh, I, I, I wish I could give you a formula. <laughs> what we know, though, is that the more we practice something, the better we get at it. So if you're 
not a weightlifter with lifter. If you're like, you know, have really weak muscles and you want to build your muscles up, you're not going to start with 50 pound barbells. You're going to start with five pound barbells. You might, but you would, right. But, but you could injure yourself, right? And that is when people wake from their nightmares panicked. That's the equivalent of trying to lift a 50 pound barbell without you know, practicing first. So let's start with the smaller ones first. And if we tell people, your dreams have information that they're sharing with you. And if you're getting really scary nightmares, or you're getting repetitive nightmares, or you're getting themes that keep repeating, that's an SOS from your unconscious saying, there's something you haven't been attending to. There's something that you need to know and or do. And we're going to keep bugging you until you pay attention. So if you promise that part of yourself that you're willing, ready, and able to attend to whatever the warning is that they're trying to give you that you have to deal with, and you honor it, take it slowly. And don't try to look at progress over a night or even a week. But I've I've, here, here's an example from a, a, a client of mine some years ago would have these horrible, horrible dreams. And we've been doing dream work together for quite some time. And in the process of doing the dream work, we, we'd work through the images. We'd make the connection to life. This metaphor is probably connected to this. And then sometimes we stay right in the metaphor and we just work with the, the, you know, the mama bear and the cubs who are being, and she's grouchy. We just stay right talking about the bears. We don't make a connection to anything else. But we did this for a while. And then after, I don't know, couple of weeks, maybe a month or two, she came in and she said, Linda, I'm sort of afraid to even mention it, but um, I had some dreams this week, but they weren't really nightmares. <laughs> and she said, I don't want to jinx it. I said, that's terrific. Just notice and don't worry if you have another nightmare in the process. But this is a, an, um, an indicator that your body is beginning to heal and beginning to come into equilibrium. And then over time, as we continue to work together month after month, her nightmares really abated altogether. And then what happened so beautifully is some of the same themes that were in her earlier nightmares, for example, the theme of a house, and in her original nightmares, the house was on fire, or the house was being flooded, or someone was breaking the windows, or there was a madman with a knife you know, in the house. Those themes started to disappear. And then in a few months, she started to dream of houses that had a white picket fence, and a house where she was sitting in the yard with her cat in her lap, petting her cat, and a house where she was cooking dinner and having some friends coming over for dinner. So we see the original theme or image of the nightmare begin to shift and change as the healing progresses. And when that happens, this reduction in the intensity or frequency of nightmares, do you also see a reduction in the other trauma symptoms unrelated to sleep? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, because we have multiple layers of consciousness in our life. You know, we have our full-on wide awake, here we are talking to each other consciousness. And then we have our sound asleep 
and I'm having a dream consciousness. But in between those two, we have daydreaming and we have reverie and we have that hypnopompic zone that we and hypnagogic zone that we talked about before. And we have spacing out in the classroom and you missed what the professor was saying for the last 10 minutes. Um, these are all different layers of consciousness and different types of dissociative experiences, right? So highway hypnosis is a form of dissociation on one end of the spectrum. The other end of the spectrum is um, dissociative identity disorder, but it's on the same spectrum. So when we're doing dream work, I'm also not ignoring, of course, what's happening in my client's waking life. And we talk about that as well. But as we bring the healing and the resolution and the shifting into the dreams, we see it begin to be mirrored in waking life as well, because it's all the same being, right? It's just a different layer of consciousness, but it is the same person. Because of your specialization, I imagine that there are things that you ask clients in an assessment process that folks who are not as familiar with dream work may not even think about. What do you make sure to ask either at the beginning or routinely throughout treatment because of your knowledge? Mm, thank you. So in an assessment process, and I think most clinicians are probably doing this nowadays, I will ask them um, to tell me about any trauma history that they know about. And I will ask them, did you, depending on what they're, excuse me, what they're sharing about their emotional life, I will ask them if they ever thought or wondered whether or not they were traumatic experiences that they might not completely remember. And that question, I, I can't tell you how many times someone has said, wow, you know, no one's ever asked me that, but I've always wondered if, and then they'll have a story of, of sexual assault or abuse or neglect or, or, or something kind of horrific. We also sometimes with a question like that, um, get to preverbal memory. Now, preverbal memory, things that happened to us before we developed language, we will not have a working narrative memory of because we didn't have language at that time. So anything that happened before the age of two or three is going to be remembered in somatosensory symptoms as opposed to language and cognition. So I'm asking about physiological symptoms. I want to get a really good health history. I want to get a really good family history. Um, I want to do a genogram with people. What do they know about their, their, aunt, their parents, their grandparents, their ancestors, life experiences? And I'm going to be on the lookout for both the positive, the bright ones in their past, the nurturing, caring, loving ones in their past, and the ones in their past where she says, oh yeah, my, my Aunt Tilly, no one ever talks about her. I, I, I think she ended up you know, in a mental hospital at some point and then no one ever saw her again. Or yeah, on my dad's side of the family, um, I lost my grandparents in the Holocaust and my, my father never talked about that again. Um, he was over here on Kindle Transport, and um, you know he never talked about what happened to his family. Or my ancestors I know were slaves in um, in Georgia, and they can trace their family tree, and and I know the names of my great grandparents and where they were. So I'm paying particular attention 
to these kind of things. They might not be talking about it in depth or in detail in the assessment, but I'm noticing and thinking, okay, what if anything of the experience of their ancestors has come through in an intergenerational trauma or a family legacy burden that they're still maybe carrying themselves today that may or may not be part of their present life, but they're still carrying the belief systems. And they were parented by people who were traumatized, even if they themselves weren't. And so when I'm working with the dreams and the nightmares, I'm also paying attention to this family legacy, if we haven't already uncovered, or even if we have, to see if there are some connections there. And then back to your actual question, what else might I ask when I'm working with someone in, in the, my assessments? I always ask about their dream life. And we as clinicians are not taught to honor or do that in pretty much, in, unless you went to Pacifica or Naropa, uh, we're not taught to pay attention to our dream life. And I think we're just missing a whole enormous resource for helping and healing by not doing that. So I'll ask people about their dreams. I'll ask them, how often do you remember your dreams? Are there any themes? Are there any patterns? Do you like having dreams? Do you mostly have nightmares? Do you ever have nightmares that are just feelings as opposed to pictures? Um, has anyone ever told you that you're screaming or calling out in your sleep? Um, have you ever found yourself sleepwalking or talking in your sleep? Um, so a lot of questions about sleep hygiene and things that do or don't go bump in the night, I'm going to ask about because that's going to round out the picture of the, you know, six to 10 hours we all spend in bed every day. I think you're right that many of us, with the exception of looking at flashbacks or nightmares probably aren't asking about dreams. We may be asking about sleep, but not that extra question about what's happening during our sleep. We may ask, you know, do you, do you wake up feeling refreshed? Do you have trouble getting back to sleep? Things like that. And you would know far more about this than I do. I think too, when we're looking at the development of the field in Western culture of psychology, and psychiatry, the unusual relationship to dream and nightmares. You know, I'm remembering if you look at early Freudian resources, different interpretations about, oh, if you're dreaming about this and this is what this means, it almost feels like maybe we kind of threw out the baby with the bathwater, so to speak, in getting away from dream work. It's a great, great analogy. I love it, Beth. I might, <laughs> I might borrow it sometime. Um, yeah, I think. Freud was so fixated on <laughs> penises, right, and sex, that everything yeah. was about sex in Freud's typology. And we did throw away the baby with the bathwater. So we need to reclaim, I think, our relationship, our healthy relationship with our nocturnal brains, with our sleeping life, with the spiritual, emotional part of ourselves that shows us pictures and shows us stories and allows us to connect across time, space, worlds, and dimensions in our sleep. There's a lot more to dreams than, you know, the edible compound. 
complex. We, we, we really, you know, Freud for who he was in his time, you know, did us a service by opening up the world to the concept of paying attention to dreams. Um, what I have heard, and I, I'm pretty sure that this is true, that there was research that said that actually when Freud was first hearing about dreams from women who were quote unquote diagnosed as hysterical, he was hearing all sorts of stories about women being molested by their, their dads in particular or other men in the family. When he reported this in Victorian society, there was such an uproar and he got so much flack for that that he backtracked and said, oh, that can't actually be true. It must have been they were having a, you know, just a dream. And it really means that they were attracted to their fathers and not that their fathers were actually molesting them. I, I they must be just telling me about a metaphor here, not something that really happened. And that, and then he backtracked because he had pulled the lid off the fact that there was sexual assault and incest in the family system. And no one in the contemporary culture at the time could bear to acknowledge that. So he put the lid back on and then it stayed buried until the 60s or 70s with the women's movement and the Vietnam War and God bless um, Dr. Judith Herman, um, who talked about trauma and recovery and other people who began to say, no, actually, these dreams were coming through as forms of memory. This is an example of a dissociated memory that worked its way up into a dream that was originally recognized as true, but then it was covered over because it was too much for society to acknowledge that this type of thing, quote unquote, could actually happen. And then it stayed, you know, then we started to actually recognize that terrible things can happen and, and home is not always a safe place and that people can be hurt and this information can actually come through in our dreams and that that is a form of memory as well. We have to be careful not to assume. I never want to jump to the conclusion that if someone is dreaming about a sexual assault of some sort or a physical assault of some sort in a dream that that means it's actually true. But I certainly don't want to discount the possibility that there may be truth buried in with the other metaphors that are there in the dream. So it's not an either or, but I want to take it slowly, carefully, and pay attention to both the metaphoric layer of the dream and the possibility that the dream is bringing forth a memory of, a, of an actual event. The concept you just introduced, I think, is uneasy for many clinicians, as it should be, because of the research about planted memories and the danger of creating potentially an environment of traumatization that may or may not have occurred. Um, Absolutely. What's her name? Um, Elizabeth Loftus, right? That whole thing about uh, false memory syndrome. That, you know. What I say to people is that you're not going to go to court with evidence based on somebody's dream. So don't even think about it in, in those terms. Think about it as information to help you help your client understand why they're having the feelings, reactions, and difficulties in their present day life, what may or may not be partially accounting for it, and take that into consideration as part of the whole. So the information that comes through in our dreams is part of the whole, but not all of the whole. And sometimes if someone is having distressing dreams and they cannot put together an actual, well, well, this happened or that happened in their life, I say, you know what? How about if we go on the assumption that something 
traumatic happened to you and your job now is to bring healing and comfort and wholeness to your being whether or not you know exactly what it was that happened that's a lovely way to help people move forward without getting stuck on this means that or i have to know every detail in order to heal you bring up a number of really important points for us to consider as we go into more work about dreams and nightmares because of that threat of maybe getting too literal. And I appreciate your redirection of let's work with what's here and what's being brought up regardless of the veracity of the questions we can't answer. Right. If if our goal is to bring hope, healing, comfort to the people that we're working with and allow them to internalize that, right? Richard Schwartz from IFS fame talks about himself as being a hope monger. That's how he describes himself. And well, I wouldn't use that exact phrase. I love the idea of being the holder and bearer of hope. And sometimes I'll say to my clients, I will believe and I will hold this for you until you're ready to take it. And then it's yours to keep forever. There's so many more questions I have at this topic, and I'm looking at the clock and aware of the time. For clinicians who are listening and want to learn more about trauma and working with dreams and nightmares in therapy, what are your favorite resources? Well, if I have to say, be perfectly honest, my the last book I wrote is a darn good book. It really, really, it, it's written PTS dreams Transform Your Nightmares from Trauma Through Healing Dream Work. Um, it's published by Llewellyn, 2022. And it really is a combination of understanding how to do dream work and has two entire chapters on the interface between trauma and nightmares and then another chapter on dissociation and nightmares. And the rest of the book is filled with techniques, stories, anecdotes, methods to work with our clients who suffer from post-traumatic nightmares, um, and including looking at repetitive dream themes, including um, looking at working from a variety of different perspectives in a dream, different types of dream work from IRT, image rehearsal therapy, to the Gestalt perspective, to psycho-spiritual perspectives. There's a chapter which is sort of a cookbook, before, during, and after, things you can do to help your dreamer before they go to sleep, while they're asleep, after they wake up. And then the last chapter is titled From PTSD to PTSG, Post-Trauma Spiritual Growth. And that's the, the thrust, that's the theme of the book, is how do we move, not only move past, but into a place of healing and wholeness and growth to be able to bring that, that tikkun olam, that healing of the world, both to ourselves and out into the world to other people as well. Um, so in addition to that book, <laughs> some of my teachers um, in the trauma field, um, it, I'm Read Bessel van der Kolk, read Peter Levine, Judith Herman is a, is a classic. Read some of the somatosensory integration folks. Read um, Janina Fisher, read Pat Ogden. Um, those are a bunch off the top of my head. Uh, Babette Rothschild it does a beautiful job of looking at integrated body-mind work. And then in the dream and nightmare field, um, 
One of my earliest teachers was Jeremy Taylor. He wrote a book by a great title called When People Fly and Rivers Run Uphill. So he's a classic in, in, in dream work. Um, try to think offhand. Um, Robert Moss does a lot with um, spiritual and shamanic dream work. And uh, Eisenstadt, I'm blanking, Stephen Eisenstadt um, has a couple of books and, uh, and classes on what it's called dream tending. I think that's even the name of one of his books, a lovely perspective of working with dreams from a variety of different ways. And um, coming up in the future, I am going to be offering more and more classes, both general dream work classes and specifically sort of nightmare treating uh, workshops as well for clinicians, as well as offering the opportunity for people to participate in dream circles themselves, where I will be offering short-term time-limited dream circles to give people a sense of how do you work live with a group of people in a dream, give you tools and practice experientially to do that, and then I encourage clinicians to work both for their own edification and with clients in doing dream circles because when we work with other people in groups, we get the benefit of multiple perspectives because none of us can see the back of our own head without two mirrors. So we all need other people's perspectives and when there's uh, an opportunity to have multiple perspectives in a dream circle, it becomes that much richer. So that will be coming up um, next year, I'm sort of at a threshold place in transitioning right now from my ongoing clinical practice to doing more and more of the dream work. Um, and as I mentioned before, I'm, I'm cooking this other book that I need time to write as well. <laughs> <laughs> Wonderful. Linda, thank you for joining us. You've covered so many interesting themes, so many threads I know I want to pull on. Thank you for joining us today and sharing your insight and helping us understand how we can better work with clients who are having nightmares that have a trauma background. I, I really appreciate you being here today. Thank you so much, Beth. I really appreciate being here and your, your wonderful, thoughtful questions. You've just finished listening to another exclusive continuing ed podcast by Clearly Clinical. If you like what you just heard and you need continuing ed credits, please visit us at clearlyclinical.com to check out our one-year membership, where you'll have access to our growing library of continuing ed podcast courses. Clearly Clinical, where our goal is to help you learn, grow, and shine.